Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we've got a loaded show today. We've got two guests. First up is going to be our friend Kaylee Hartong from ABC News. Kaylee's been, uh, first of all, we all know Kaylee from when she was a college football reporter for ESPN. She's been very open about uh, the journey she just went through of having tested positive for COVID-19 and what that whole... um, period was like for her. We want to talk to her. Um, We're also having on uh, John Gordon, who is a motivational speaker who works with a lot of the uh, top college football programs. And then Bruce, I promise people, promise, we are actually going to answer your questions about football this week. Let's get to it. We are very pleased now to be joined by our friend Kaylee Hartung. You probably remember her from her days as an ESPN sideline reporter, um, but now she is a national news reporter for uh, ABC. And the first person in my life that I know who actually uh, tested positive for coronavirus from having covered it, Kaylee, first of all, just letting people know you're recovered now, you're healthy, you're back on TV, but take us through this odyssey that you went through. I am. Thank you guys so much for having me. And thank you both for your friendship and support uh, during this this whole ordeal. I really appreciate really appreciate the kindness that I uh, received from both of you. So glad to be here with you and glad to say, yes, I am. I am doing well now. So it was um, the first week of March that I went to Seattle and I was covering covering the initial outbreak of COVID-19 in the U.S. You know, there was a nursing home there that was really the, the epicenter of it all. And, and I spent a week there really seeing firsthand the toll that this virus was taking. I mean, we were standing outside of this nursing home watching ambulances pull up every day and seeing residents from this facility rolled out on stretchers and taken to the hospital. And then you'd hear the death toll go up. I mean, it was... It was the most chilling assignment I've had in a way, in the sense that we were seeing this happen every day and we were seeing these loved ones, their family members just crying out for help and and not able to get it. So we did our best to try to hold officials accountable and help these families get answers. And, And while we were there, the virus started spreading across the country. We learned of the first case in New York, and of course, the, the country's attention turned. So there came a point when we came home, I came back to LA, and four days after I got back to LA, I had a runny nose, and I, I thought it was allergies. And then I, I kind of had a sore back, and I thought, maybe I, just slept, maybe I just slept on it wrong last night. And then the next morning, as soon as I woke up, I knew something was wrong. I had a feeling that I think we've all had before when you have the flu or when your body's just run down and, and, and it shuts down on you, but I knew something wasn't right. I had a headache just right between the eyes that wouldn't go away. Uh, that congestion continued. I had these body aches that had really escalated to, to pain, especially my lower back. And I've just never experienced lower back pain like that before. It was like I was a wind-up doll and somebody was just turning the key and turning it and tightening it and tightening it. 
and I, I had chills. And at one point, I, I laid down in bed with with chills and uh, woke up two or three hours later in a full sweat. So a fever spiked at some point in there. Um, I, I was having conversations with my bosses at ABC News, and, and our medical expert there said, you need to get tested, especially considering where I'd just been. We were all on heightened alert. But at that time, you know, the CDC guidelines were, well, if you don't have symptoms, and if you haven't had any known contact with anyone who has the virus, then you're fine. Well, thinking back on it, nobody was getting tested yet. So I, I don't know why we were adhering to, to that, that guideline being as... as um, as sort of hard to meet as it was. So I, anyway, I get told by this medical expert that I need to get tested, but then I had to go on the journey of, of figuring out how to get tested. It was incredibly difficult, very frustrating hours on the phone between my, my healthcare provider, LA County Health Department, uh, Cedar sinai here in LA, the hospital. At one point, I'm on the phone with LA County Health, and this woman says to me, well, I can tell just by talking to you, you don't, you don't, sound, you don't sound sick enough to get tested. I'm like, really? really? Is that how we're is that how we're choosing who gets tested and who doesn't? And um, and I will say, you know, my symptoms that day were, were were uncomfortable, but all things considered, yes, they were mild. And I know and I know that the guidance is if your if your symptoms are mild right now, just assume you have it and don't get tested. But but in this case, um, I think I was in I was in a unique position, and I feel really fortunate. That eventually I was able to get tested, and as soon as as I was, you know, I, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to share my story because I was able to get that test because I was able to get answers that so many people with my symptoms aren't able to get right now. So it took three days. My results came back positive, and the strange thing about getting that phone call was that by the time they called to tell me my results were positive, I was feeling better. I mean, I was feeling. I was feeling fine. I was I was experiencing symptoms that that were something at any other point in my life I would have just pushed through. At any other point in my life I would have been at work. I would have been you know trying to get to bed early or or, or whatever. I would have explained away. It's just exhaustion. But um, but what was most I think notable about my experience and and another reason why it was really important for me to share it was that I didn't have a dry cough. I don't think I coughed once. I didn't have any shortness of breath. I didn't have any of these respiratory issues that are being so closely associated with coronavirus and certainly were at the beginning stages of this. My symptoms were mild, and I think it's what millions of Americans are experiencing. And and I hope that my story can be a reality check for a lot of people that, yeah, that time a couple weeks ago you felt run down and you didn't know why, that was very likely actually coronavirus. So with with no treatment or no medicine, it seemed like your body just kind of fought it off. Um, when they tell you, okay, you have, what is it, 14 days or so before, you know, we're, I feel like we're in uncharted waters here with the science of this because they're just trying to figure it out. Like, at what point are you able to go out and about, assuming, you, you know, we in LA could go out, like, can you go to the grocery store now? Like, how, like, how do they treat people like that? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And that, yeah, and that's where I am in my story right now. So it was 14 days ago that I had my most serious symptoms. My one bad day was, was 14 days ago. So initially, when I was given my test results, the doctor said, okay, 14 days from the onset of your symptoms, you need to isolate. I said, okay, um, okay, I can do that. Wrap my mind around it. And then 
oddly enough, to my surprise, I get a call last week, last Thursday, from a woman with LA County Public Health who says, you're released from isolation. <laughs> I'm like, do well, you have the wrong number, lady? What are you talking about? It's only been seven days. And she says, well, new CDC guidelines say that if you're seven days past the onset of your symptoms and you've had more than 72 hours without a fever and your condition's improving, you're now released from isolation. You should continue to quarantine and social distance until the pandemic is under control. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and I was like, Wait, what? I don't understand what that means. It just it highlights the way that the story is just evolving, and these guidelines are changing every day. And and at the end of the day, right now, scientists, and doctors don't have the data, the the evidence to tell us exactly what that safe safe day is. And I think, you know, maybe for everyone it's different. I'm not quite sure. All I know is that these guidelines continue to change. And and when I was told that seven days you're released from isolation, you should continue to quarantine. I just, I couldn't, I didn't feel safe leaving my house at that point. So I had a conversation with my bosses at ABC and we all said, okay, let's get to day 14 as we were originally told, and then we'll reassess. So I am in that process right now. I was actually able to go back to work in the way that everyone's working from home these days um, earlier this week and report for, for World News Tonight, but I still have not left my home with the exception of two trips around my block wearing a mask. I just, it's a weird kind of mental game I think I'm playing with myself right now. It's like, what am I comfortable with? You know, what feels socially responsible for me to do right now. And the fact of the matter is I don't need to go to the grocery store. I can get those things delivered. You know, I don't really need to go anywhere and there's nowhere to go except the grocery store. So in my mind, it's sort of why, why do it? You know, why, why, why bother? Why, why the, the small chance that anybody, I'm putting anybody at risk. Um, but I spoke to an, I spoke to an infectious disease doctor just yesterday and, and he said, you know, you're, he was like, you're good to go. You're good to return to work in, you know, whatever capacity you need to. Like, here's the all clear from me. At this point, we need to assume that you can't get it again and that you can't continue to spread it. We need to assume that. And that's what the CDC is telling us we can do. But the fact of the matter is the only way to know for certain that I'm no longer a carrier of this virus is to get tested again. And I think you guys can both understand, like, that's a problem for me. I, you know, that's a, that just seems like a waste of resources when we know how precious these tests are and we know how many people want to get tested, need to get tested, and can't. So I'm, you know, I'm not really looking at that as an option, but it's, it's just unbelievable that we're at a state where people don't have, the smartest people, you know, don't have hard answers. Um, like cold hard facts to give us about about what this virus can do and how it affects your body so kaylee how does having experienced this yourself um affect the way you now well you're, you're reporting the news but also just consuming the news where it just it's it just seems like a lot of the a lot of the stories that we read about this are just a bunch of numbers you know here's the latest report here's the latest uh, number of infections. Here's the latest number of deaths. Um, to actually have gone through it, like how does does that change the way you are following the story? 
it's always been important to me so long as as I've been aware of coronavirus to to be able to help people be able to put those those faces to the numbers. And so that's my job now to keep to keep trying to do that. I never imagined my face would be associated with the numbers. I never imagined I would be a statistic. Um, mm. But but here we are. And now, you know, the turn the story is taking, it gets personal for me in another way because Louisiana, where I'm from, is looking to be the next epicenter of the virus in the U.S. I actually, uh, I just got a an update from the Louisiana Department of Health and they've got 2,300 cases there right now and 83 deaths. And th- those numbers are going to continue to climb. I spoke to a uh, I spoke to a pulmonologist in New Orleans a couple of days ago who said, you know, New Orleans is no stranger to disaster, but right now he just feels like he's standing on the shore watching a tsunami come at them. They're, they're not yet at a point where the hospitals are overrun, but the trend that he sees and that is just con- continuing to, to grow exponentially is that people are coming to the hospital and they need critical care. And I think we all recognize that when those those resources are strapped, how how scary the situation can become. I th- I think you had tweeted something, and it was it was related to this study. Um, I think it was like three or four days ago about Louisiana has the fastest growth rate of confirmed corona cases in the world in the world, which is like a, a jolting statement from I guess a study that had been done down there and. One of the things that just from looking at social media, and obviously you can kind of twist yourselves in knots from what you get on, you know, shows up on your Twitter timeline. But I think there's a lot of people who look at it and go, okay, well, that's that's a problem that's over there or that's in Europe or that's in Asia or, or that's in New York City. And I think that this thing, sadly, has gotten politicized and people are skeptical of whatever they're being told. And I think... You know, the fact that it's in Louisiana and going to the degree it is, I don't know if that will, you know, open more people's eyes to this, that this isn't a, you know, about what state you're in or anything like that. I'm curious as to what your reaction was like, because you were one of the first people I saw to be reporting about it. You know, I think Stu and I may have talked about this, about some of the comments that would show up uh, under your, whatever you'd post on Instagram. Ugh. People are, you know, it's just kind of like incredulous how... I think people had yeah. kind of like lost perspective on this. Never mind lost compassion, but just had like no perspective on on this. Right. Oh, I can't tell you how many how many tweets I saw. You know, the flu kills more people than this every year. Why do we care so much? Um, you know, or or people saying, "Oh, this is all you know media hype and hysteria." And how could you do that? How could you breed that? And, 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 you know, and again, I, I go back to, I'm literally watching people rolled out on stretchers and put into ambulances every day in Seattle. Like, I don't know what I need to tell you people to say this is real, but sadly, it's not real for a lot of people until their grandmother ends up in the ICU, you know, until their brother who is seemingly healthy uh, needs to be rushed to the hospital. It, you know, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of tragedies in this country that don't seem real to people until they happen where you live, whether it's it's gun violence and, um, you know, a mass shooting at a school happens in your state or in your city or God forbid at your school. Um, but this is 
this is real. And I think when you're, when you're able to see economies all over the world shutting down at this point, I don't know how anybody can deny that this, this virus is a serious problem. And to look at Italy and Spain and I mean, I don't know why anybody would think we, we aren't next and why our numbers wouldn't, won't continue to grow just as, as theirs did. Obviously, we hope that the measures we're taking right now can be impactful, but you know, it takes sort of two weeks for any changes to be seen and recognized in the statistics. But I have a hard time with the statistics and the projections and all the numbers associated with this virus in the first place because you know, when we talk about confirmed cases, we only have that number based off the number of people who've been tested. And we all know there aren't enough tests. So as more tests become available, those numbers will continue to spike. And I don't think when this is, when this is all said and done, I mean, we'll never, we'll never have all the information to be able to really wrap our minds around how many people were impacted by this, by this disease. So Kaylee, if somebody out there um, in our audience starts having symptoms like you had or symptoms uh, some, to what they've read about, um, what is your what would be your advice of how to navigate that? You know what you described as a very very um, vexing situation now with how do I get tested? What kind of treatment should I be trying to get? Um, all that stuff. I mean, the, the sad reality is that you're probably not going to get tested if you have mild symptoms. So come to terms with that and assume you have this virus stay home for 14 days at the very least stay home for seven um but do your best to be a good citizen of the world here i wasn't at great risk my health was never at great risk in the scheme of me contracting this illness but i was putting other people at risk if i would have stayed out wandering the streets of los angeles and i think that's what we all need to keep in mind here any any sort of selfish behavior of of thinking you can continue living your lives the way that we once knew them or or thinking that your body can beat this or whatever attitude you want to have that that ignores the seriousness of this you're not just hurting yourself you are hurting other people around you and could put someone in one of these high risk categories at serious risk to the point of death. So if you experience these mild symptoms, I don't encourage you to try to get tested. I don't think there's a point. Um, I recognize that a lot of people want the peace of mind and I certainly did. But looking back on it now, I mean, just the fact that, Stu, you said I was the first person who you know who tested positive for the virus, that's only because I got a test. You know, I guarantee there are plenty of people you know, who've had this virus, they just don't know because they don't have the test results to prove it. But bottom line being, I think anyone who has mild symptoms, stay home. There's nowhere to go anyway right now. Be smart and and look at know that you are you are doing a better service to to anyone you would come in contact with by just staying home. And there is no treatment. You know, I took some Tylenol for a headache. I took some NyQuil for congestion. The hospital didn't give me any medication or any prescription. This is a rest, hydrate sort of illness that, you know, just takes time time to pass. Well, we hope that uh, that you stay well and keep us informed on, on the things you've been doing. 
And I know for all, like, again, as Stu said, for a lot of us, just knowing you, especially as part of our college football world, even though you're in, doing real, new, <laughs> real news now, um, it, it definitely hit home. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that we're all in this together. And I, I do hope that, you know, as people who listen, listen to you and your perspective on it, they get that. And so we're, we're praying for everybody through this. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about you guys and your families and yeah, let's all do our best to stay healthy and stay home. And I think the sooner everybody gets serious about this, the the sooner we'll get through it. Kaylee, we can't thank you enough for coming on. I hope this uh, telling your story helped some people listening today and we'll uh, see you soon. Absolutely. Look forward to it, guys. Back to the podcast in a second. But first, a word about one of our sponsors, DoorDash. We've talked about DoorDash on here in the past, how delivery is more than just pizza in 2020. But now, with everybody in their homes and seemingly every meal a challenge, there's never been a better time to use DoorDash. We certainly are, both in terms of convenience of meals delivered to your door, but also this is a great chance to support your local restaurants. Since we can't actually go to them, at least we can get them delivered to our door. DoorDash brings all of America's flavors to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food is delivered to you wherever you are. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 U.S. states, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can order from your favorite local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. With DoorDash, you'll never have to worry about your next meal. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code AUDIBLE. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code AUDIBLE. Don't forget that's AUDIBLE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. All right, as uh, we thanked Kaylee for her time and obviously her her thoughts um, and her perspective on it, as you guys, as our listeners know, and last week we had, a, a, we had George Schroeder on and, and had a a different kind of podcast probably discussion than we've normally had, but I think we're in kind of different transition mode right now as, as both Stu and I are just kind of figuring this out and what kind of content um, we can, we can deliver at this point and what probably what we're comfortable with because everything is not quite normal at this point when you have kids at home and everything shut down and, and you're just trying to stay informed, but not knowing you can't watch too much of the news because it can be, pretty overwhelming and having said that um in the same spirit of having george on i thought it was good to have on somebody who a lot of football programs both college and pro really lean on uh as a motivational resource and that's john gordon john's perspective i think is really good one to have at this point and i really thought um we could bring him on as well coming uh you know, coming as we as we're all trying to figure this out. All right, Stu, and we are now pleased to be joined by our guest. He is the best-selling author and also a consultant to a lot of pro sports teams, as well as a lot of college teams and college coaches, and has proven to be a great resource. A lot of people probably are familiar with uh, one of his biggest books, The Energy Bus. But there's really a lot of a lot of insight and I think a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, good positive 
thoughts that you can get from from John Gordon. So we're thrilled that John could join us today on the Audible. John, thanks for being here. Bruce, great to be with you. Uh, before we get to some of the things you've been doing with athletes very recently, as including this morning um, in a webinar, I wanted to ask you a little bit about for people who are really struggling with this and with the COVID-19 and you, you know, you can't help but not see the news and some of it can be overwhelming and maybe your kids are at home like Stu and I both are, you know, you're trying to juggle working and you're glad you still have the job. But at the same point, um, there's a lot of stuff to sort through and, and you're you're looking at the numbers that are coming back from Italy and Spain and thinking, are we the United States headed down that direction? How would you suggest people cope with this? Well, first and foremost, you want to acknowledge how you feel. You don't want to tune them out. You don't want to ignore them. You want to understand that this is real and it's okay to be down. It's okay to be negative at times. It's okay to be a little frustrated and scared. But guess what? You don't want to live there because you don't want this moment and this event to take you down a spiral staircase of despair. You want to make sure that you're feeding yourself each day with positivity because there are positive things happening. If you watch the news too much, it will bring you down because the news is going to often show the worst. But there are a lot of people that are getting it that are healthy. The CDC said that most people who do get this will recover just fine. My wife and I are pretty sure that we had it and we're actually doing great now. And it's been several weeks actually. So understanding the reality of the situation, being aware of that and really confronting it in a positive way. So this is not about seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. This is about knowing that you have the power to overcome the thorns, that this is a time to really deep, go deep down and within and say, what am I made of? How can I overcome this? Through adversity, we find a greater strength. We find a greater compassion. Bruce, Bruce, this is like, if you think about it, one of the greatest acts of humanity in history, what we're doing. We're literally giving up our financial, our financial future in many ways for some people, our businesses, our lives, so that we, we can make sure that others stay healthy. It's really incredible when you think what an act of generosity that is. So, so for me, it's about seeing the big picture and knowing the formula E plus P equals O. We can't control the events in our life, but we can control our positive response. And so often that will determine the outcome. And the outcome is going to be that we get through this. The outcome is going to be, it's going to be tough for a little while. The numbers are going to go up a little bit as we move forward. We're going to see some higher numbers before it gets better. So at its worst, it's going to seem like it's the worst, but it's actually going to be when it starts to get better. And I think most of the reports show that. Most of the data shows that. So for me, it's about being optimistic about the future and staying positive through the challenge. What's the key mentally to... Like I find myself this happening all the time. Um, you know, we're all still trying to get the hang of this new, you know, living life under these restrictions. And I've got a four-year-old at home, and I'm trying to work and all these things. And some days I feel like, all right, we're getting the hang of it. You know, we can we can handle another month or two of this. And then you have these really long, uh, stressful days, and you're like starting to dread, like, oh my gosh, if we have to live like this for another several months, like, how are we ever going to make it? How do you keep your, your, your mind from going too far down that road? Yeah, the key is to focus just like a quarterback. You want to focus on the present moment. I, I love 
Bruce's book about the quarterback, right? What, a, what an amazing book. And a quarterback focuses at their best on the play at hand, on the moment, seeing the field, seeing the receiver, accomplishing one task at a time. Remember years ago, Colt McCoy was a senior. I was visiting Texas, speaking to the team, and Colt asked to speak to me afterwards after I spoke, and I met with him one-on-one, and he was feeling the pressure of being a Heisman candidate, of everything that was going on, and we had this great conversation about what quarterbacks do. I said, what's your focus? Well, you know, get the handoff or get the snap. Then make my read and then throw to the open receiver. I said, exactly. Well, then just do that. Like, that's what you need to do is focus on one moment at a time, not focusing on the whole big picture of a Heisman Trophy candidate. If I don't play well, what the people are saying. So it's the same thing right now as, as us as parents is to focus one moment at a time, one day at a time. So don't think too far ahead. Just think about how can I make today great and how can I get through today? Like, all right, let's just make it to breakfast. You know, let's make it to breakfast tomorrow. And then tomorrow we'll start over again and we'll have another day. So just take it one day at a time rather than already seeing the big picture. I was talking to a Navy SEAL the other day and he said, you know, the guys who didn't make it on the SEAL team, who didn't make it through Hell Week, those were the ones that were looking at the big picture and the entire week. The ones who made it were focusing on just the task at hand in that moment, not even thinking to breakfast, probably thinking to lunch, then to, to nighttime. Then when they woke up the next morning, all right, thank God I'm alive. All right, another day, let's make it to midday. Let's make it to the afternoon. And they were just breaking it down into bite-sized chunks, that's the key. Hey John, if I told you when you were a student at Cornell, this was going to be your world and this was going to be how your mind worked. This is, these are going to be your constituents, your customers, whatever you want to call it, whether they're Colt McCoy's or Dabo Sweeney's or, you know, the LA Dodgers or whoever, or Navy SEALs, what would, uh, you know, a 19 year old John Gordon have, have thought of, of this version of you? Would have never thought it possible. So I grew up in a Jewish Italian family, a lot of food, a lot of guilt, and I wasn't very positive actually. So at 19, I would say I was straight out of New York and, you know, Long Island kid and, and going to Cornell, playing lacrosse. And I was a hard worker, but I probably wasn't the most positive person in the world. And even in my late 20s, I really struggled with negativity and my life was falling apart. And Maybe, Bruce, that's why I'm so optimistic now because I've been through so many things where my world was, was, was falling apart and caving in and lost my job during the dot-com crash and two small children didn't know how we we're going we were gonna to pay the bills. Scariest time of my life. And so to do what I do now, I would never have thought that possible that I'd be working with sports teams and these amazing coaches and these great teams. And it really is something that, that in many ways shocks me and surprises me that this is my life's work, that this negative kid is now doing this positive work. And I'm not naturally positive. People think I am. So, so I want people to know, like when this happened early on, like my world was shook just like, like most people. I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking engagements. I'm preparing in a year where I may not make a dime. And, so, and yet, I still believe the best is yet to come. I still believe that we will get through this somehow, some way. I do have this optimistic mindset. I'm a pessimistic optimist. So I go negative first and then I start to have this eternal hope and this positive belief that somehow, some way we will make it through and we will work out. And 
Dabble Sweeney is a lot like that. I think that's why we get along so well because, you know, we both had difficult past, difficult challenges. My, his is a lot harder than mine, but, but in many ways, just different adversities along the way. And, and that's what I see. So, so yes, to do what I do, it's a blessing and it's a, it's an honor. And, um, every time I'm with a team, I'm like, wow, I, I can't believe I, I get to do this. And I really love it. I'm passionate about it. It used to be where I would go to a team and I would be like awestruck now. I know what I need to say to help them. So for now, it's like, I want to just help these guys and help these, these women athletes. I want to help these teams get better. And that's what I'm solely focused on. And I just love it. I get excited about it every day. I just did a webinar with, with student athletes. We had 2,000 student athletes and coaches sign up for it. It was free. And it was just so rewarding to be able to do it. And so many joined and we took questions and helped them through this difficult time. I'm worried about their, their fears. I'm worried about their isolation right now. We know that many young athletes today and many, many of us in general deal with stress and fear and anxiety and depression and, and suicidal thoughts. And so I'm really concerned about these student athletes right now of what they're going through. And I encourage them to make sure they're exercising. Get that exercise that your body is used to moving. Make sure that you are exercising on your own right now to really just get that endorphins going through your mind and your body. Appreciate what you have right now. Make sure you focus on appreciation and that you're alive, that you're healthy, that you'll get a chance to play again. Maybe not the fall, Bruce. Maybe you will be right. But at some point, you will again. If you've lost your season, if you were a senior, well, guess what? The great lesson here, and it's a sad one, but you'll learn it. You'll never take anything for granted again, and you will appreciate so many things going forward in your life. So there's always an opportunity to learn and grow. And then I also told them that you are, as an athlete, have been injured before. We've all been injured. I was injured often at Cornell. When you get injured, you have to work on your mind, you have to work in your body, and you have to prepare to come back. Well, it's the same thing right now. Use this time to work on your mind, prepare your body, so that you can come back even stronger as a result of this. John, one of the things that, uh, that struck me a little bit is when you were talking about your education at Cornell and, and your transformation, I mean, my word, not your on that, but just from listening to it, I'm curious, there's a lot of people who speak to football teams and, and sports teams and athletes on motivational fronts, and they all have come at probably in slightly different ways, you know, whether it's Inky Johnson, um, yourself, there's a, there's a bunch Dave, of people. Damon, now do- Damon West, Ryan Leaf, yep. Yeah, I mean, and so we probably we know Ryan Leaf's story the best because of where he was as a pro athlete and everything. And I remember uh, we my crew did a TCU game, and um, Gary Patterson told the story of a former uh, former college quarterback who went to prison and talked about the difference between uh, you know you put an egg in water, and, and and this was another motivational speaker. I know I'd mentioned this story to Chip Kelly, and Chip Chip was very familiar with it. From, from you being in the business of this, how much do you study what other people do and maybe what resonates, how things do while you're still trying to be true to yourself and your message? How much do you study what other people who are also in the same space do? Oh, I love Enki Johnson, love Ryan Damon West about overcoming meth and being in prison for seven years. He and I wrote a book called The Coffee Bean Together and it happened because Dabo Sweeney introduced us. So I study them, I watch them, but here's what I know. Like, they have their own unique story and experience and they can only share their story and their experience. I can't share theirs because I can only share what I know and what I've been through. So the key is to be true to yourself 
So I try to come at it from a standpoint of leadership, building a positive team, my own experiences as an athlete, and what I've learned from all the teams and all the coaches and all the student athletes that I've worked with. So now I'm able to share my lessons and what I've learned along the way from all these other people. So I'm more of a teacher than anything. I would say some of these guys have the best stories ever and, and, and I can't compete with their story. If I follow them, I think, wow, like I don't want to have to follow them because there's something raw about their own experience. Like Inky's experience, man, like you can't recreate that. But Inky had to go through that as a human being and deal with that. And that's what made him who he is. What I can go through and what I could share is my own negativity, my own challenges, my struggles. As a student athlete, I know that I didn't give it all, my all to be the best I could be. And it's one of my regrets. And I talked to them about that. I allowed distractions to get in the way. So I can only speak from my experiences. So each one of us is going to share our story, our lessons. As long as you're sharing it from the heart and it's true, that's what comes across. That's what's powerful. Student athletes love authenticity. They want realness. They want vulnerability. Don't tell me you're perfect. Tell me your story and now I can relate to you and I can connect to you. And I think that's what's most powerful. Hey, John, just before we wrap, one, one thing. So the story, just so the listeners know that I was referencing that Gary Patterson had told me and then I related to Chip Kelly. That was, that was Damon's story. Um, when you heard it, um, did it immediately think, wow, this is something that can, that can help a lot of people out? I mean, when you, when you talk about Dabo Sweeney and how that kind of, you know, kind of sprouted from there, can you just kind of wrap on that of, of, sure. of where that kind of came and grew from? It was such a cool moment because I get up there and Dab was like, hey, we just had this guy, Damon Westpeak, and he talked about the carrot, the egg, and the coffee bean, and Dab was all animated. He's all excited about it. He's giving me the whole talk. So Dab was like recreating Damon's talk for me as he's, as he's telling me about it. And I'm like, what a great lesson because I've been talking about the powers on the inside, inside out, not outside in. For several years, I was sharing that. Shared it with Clemson before their first college football playoffs when they were going to, to – uh, and playing the ACC game in Charlotte. And then I went back up there and talked to the team before the, the first college football playoffs. And I talked about the power is inside you, inside out, not outside in. So the coffee bean message is all about inside out, being a coffee bean. Carrot and egg, right, are outside forces that can weaken you or harden you. But the coffee bean is knowing that you can transform your environment from the inside out. So Dabo tells me this, and I'm like, man, that is the best analogy to explain inside out. So right away, I thought there needs to be a book called The Coffee Bean. So I Google, noticed that there wasn't a book, The Coffee Bean. Then I saw all these videos of The Coffee Bean, The Carrot, and The Egg on there. So I thought, oh, wow, this has been around for a while. It wasn't Damon who invented it. He heard it from a guy in prison that taught him the story. So Dabo said, you know, you should reach out to Damon. I said, I will. And I reached out. And Damon said, hey, John, you can do this on your own. You don't have to do it with me. I said, no, no, I think we're supposed to do this book together. You've been talking about it. I don't want to take it from you. I just love the idea and I think we can do it together and have a bigger impact and, and share this message with others. And he said, I'm in, let's do it. And literally, boom, we wrote the book like in a, in a few short days. It's only a 20 minute read. So it's a very quick, quick read with a lot of pictures. So, so even, you know, athletes can, will read it. <laughs> and so we'll cross players will read it too because it's short. So, so in doing that, um, now that book is out. So it's really a cool story about how Dabble introduced us, connected us, and knowing that we were meant to do it together. And really exciting because, you know, I gave Damon half my advance for the book and everything. And I wanted to be truly, you know, like a great teammate. And he told me that when he got the check from the publisher for the advance, 
it was the same amount that his parents had used for legal fees to try to keep him out of jail. And he was able to pay his parents back with that money. So it was really cool. Yeah, that is cool. Well, we encourage uh, our listeners to follow you on Twitter. It's J-O-N Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N 11, at John Gordon 11. Uh, John is the guy that a lot of your probably favorite football coaches turn to and lean on to help motivate their teams. And so, John, we appreciate you taking time on the Audible to join us and share some of your perspective. Bruce, thanks for having me. And I just want to just say in closing, at this time, talk to yourself, don't listen to yourself. Right now, there's a lot of things we can be listening to, the negative thoughts, the fears, and the doubts. This is a time that we have to talk to ourselves with the words and the encouragement we need to keep on moving forward. That's a good, good way to put it. All right, John, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks. Back to the podcast in a second, but first a word about our sponsor, The Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo for their big day. Did you know The Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Quote, go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. Ouch. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy we were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to remember for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code CFB10. That's theblacktux.com, code CFB10 for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, Bruce, at long last, let's get to our emails. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And our first one is for you, Bruce, from Derek Johnson. Matt Lubick was one of the coaches you followed in Meat Market. Great book. Yes, it was. What does he bring to his new position at Nebraska coaching wide receivers? And do you have any fun anecdotes about him at Ole Miss when you were writing Meat Market? Thank you, Derek. Uh, I have a couple. I have one anecdote I can share and one I would like to, but I probably shouldn't um, because I don't think I have Matt's permission to tell this story. Uh, but the other one I, I, I can say now, first from starters, uh, he was Ole Miss's receivers coach back then, and he he helped recruit, but he also really shepherded what was a group that had no experience in the first year I was working on the book, which was Ed Ogeron's second season. So that group was Dexter McCluster, turned out to be a great player. Mike Wallace turned out to be a really good NFL player. Shea Hodge, really, really good college player as well. And there was a few other guys, but had zero experience going into that year. And I think Matt helped them along. But remember, they didn't have really good quarterback play either, so that made it harder. But uh, he ended up leaving after after that season to go to Arizona State and reunite with Dennis Erickson, who really he grew up around because his dad had worked, his dad Sonny had worked for Dennis both at Miami and Washington State. Uh, so my my first Matt Lubick, um, I'm debating whether I tell even the depths of the story. My first Matt Lubick story was then my first day working on the book. It's the day before that signing class, a year out, I guess 366 days out, and I went out for. Uh, 
I went out for drinks the next day after signing day with uh, with Dan Werner, who had just got there as the offensive coordinator, and we were in the rib cage, which people in Oxford know it, and it was Dan's kind of spot. It was kind of a barbecue place that you could definitely get beer at. And so at some point, people had made some comments to me where I was like, they were being friendly, which didn't surprise me. That's kind of how Oxford was. But like I was didn't quite get some of the references. And then at one point, some guy said, your dad, I think your dad's so underrated. And I was like, my dad had had passed away like 20 years earlier and had never, as far as I know, never been in the state of Mississippi. And um, then it dawned on me, they think I'm Lubick. I had no... Uh, I had no Ole Miss gear on or anything like that, but I was was with Dan, and Matt is maybe a little smaller than me, but we both have, at the time, we probably had similar haircuts, um, looked a little alike, I guess. And so people thought I was Matt Lubick, and I wasn't, but it was it was kind of interesting to hear the, you know that kind of connection. And, and the thing with Matt was he had the strictest diet of anybody I've probably been around who's in football, meaning, and in Oxford, Mississippi, where... You know, they have great sweet tea and really heavy fatty foods and a bunch of good restaurants. Um, Matt's go-to was always, he would get a turkey sub from Subway. And he, I mean, if he took in 12 grams of fat a day, it was probably a lot for him. You know, so he had this religiously, ridiculously strict diet there in, in Oxford, Mississippi. And I think when he got to uh, got to ASU, I think he was probably a little more in his comfort zone in terms of that. So I imagine he'll probably eat some big steaks, I would think, because he's going to be in Nebraska and he's back with his his old buddy, Scott Frost, and they really connected, especially at Oregon. So I think he'll do well there because um, he's really authentic and he knows what Scott wants. And I think that he was a tireless recruiter. I mean, he was the guy for Ole Miss who found Dexter McCluster in a small town there when nobody was hyping him up. And he did that with a bunch of other kids, too. So I think he's a good addition for Nebraska. I think that, you know, certainly a big key for them when we get to the season will be how much better Adrian Martinez can play and what they can do with the passing game. But I, I, I think they'll be better. It's just, you know, I thought they were going to be better last year and they didn't take that big step. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, one of the keys for Nebraska this season will be the development of that group, but also... I think Scott Frost has recruited well there. I don't think it's been night and day above, you know, his predecessors there. So it'll be good for him to have another uh, really good recruiter on the staff. This question is from Eric in Peoria. Gentlemen, as I was reading your respective lists, and I assume he means our coaching top 25, I was curious what it would take for Herm Edwards to crack the list next year. He's kept them competitive during a rebuild and has him on the cusp of what could be a magical season. If my Sun Devils win 10 games and make it to Las Vegas, does he crack the list next year? Love the pod. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Eric. Stu, what do you say? Eric did not include his state, and at first I would assume it's Peoria, Illinois, but do you think it's Peoria, Arizona? It might be. I I feel like there's some baseball uh, uh, MLB teams that have spring training down there, so that's why I was hesitated to say Peoria, Illinois. Yeah, look, if, if... if the ASU wins 10 games, and when he says make it to Las Vegas, he's referring to the Pac-12 title game being in Las Vegas now, I think, I assume, mm-hmm. not the Las Vegas Bowl. Um, yeah, I think he would crack the list because that's what we need to see. You know, there's been a lot of reasons for ASU fans to be optimistic um, based on what he's done so far. But at the end of the day, like, they haven't had really a better record than they were having 
the last few years under Todd Graham. They, I will say that that win over Oregon late in the season that knocked Oregon out of the playoff race was huge in terms of showing people, okay, uh, record or not, this team is capable of doing something like this. And the key to that whole game, obviously, was their quarterback, Jaden Daniels, who was only a freshman, and gives you something to rally around in the uh, here. In the it gives you, a, you know, he becomes the face of the program, and and a, and a big part of their identity going forward. So uh, there's a lot up in the air there. You know, we know that it's a different model, as he said, and he's very reliant on his coordinators, and he has new ones, including uh, a very familiar name, Marvin Lewis, who was behind the scenes last year and is now co-defensive coordinator um obviously losing you know benjamin is big um just i really don't know what to expect from him this coming year but eric is clearly optimistic because he referred to it as being on the cusp of a magical season well i think part of the optimism from eric not to speak for him too much is that uh you know they've recruited well if you look at the star system so they've recruited very well in southern california and also if you look at utah lost a ton of guys and obviously USC still has some talent and certainly, uh, you know, has a lot of guys back, but it's no stretch to think if you're buying in on Herm and you're, you know, a terrific young quarterback, by the way, from Southern California, who has family who works in the uh, USC football office and still, you know, ended up not going there and is now at ASU. I could see why there's optimism. I want to ask you this on the subject of Herm. There was three coaches, all with different backgrounds and resumes, who are all plus 60, who I think all, you know, all three of three hires, we were all skeptical of. Now, I think you were more skeptical of a couple of them more than me, but certainly Herm Edwards, I was not, especially how it started in some of the press conferences, some of the optics of it didn't sound great, but Herm Edwards, Les Miles and Mac Brown, all three have done much better or at least better than I thought they would. Les you know, he was, he won games that we, you know, he, they produced better than I thought. Now they're not a bowl team, but you know, there's that, um, which of these three guys do you, not, do you feel the best about? Cause it seems like Mac Brown has the chance to break out the most. He has, he has Sam Howell. I'm not saying they're ready to be Clemson or anything like that, but which of these three guys now do you feel like you were wrongest about? Uh, Mac, because my initial like off the cuff reaction because remember unc had a chance to hire scott satterfield and they didn't even try and and then he goes and and louisville gets him uh i'm not ready to say that mac was a better hire in the end because i still think satterfield's a great coach but my initial reaction was what are you kidding me what are you doing unc um but the the uh the recruiting has been unbelievable. Sam Howell, obviously, and, and Sam Howell was a guy who was heading to Florida State until Mac flipped him late uh, right after getting the job, and now he's the future of that program. And then just the division he's in in the ACC, and not that the division Herm is in is all that much more daunting right now, but you know, there's a legitimate chance there for them to be a contender, probably possibly as soon as this season. So. Um, I give him a lot of credit. He put together a great staff, a great recruiting staff, and and off they go. Uh, I think the jury's still out on Les of Kansas, and Herm could go either way. You know, like I said earlier, he, there's reason for optimism, but there's also a lot of question marks. From Barry in Portland, as a Utah grad, I appreciate your guys' continued respect for the job Coach Witt is doing. Here's my question, referencing the BCS versus the playoff. Which is the more ideal situation? 
having a great team in a group of five conference with a chance to bust the BCS, or having an okay team in a power five conference with little to no chance of ever getting to the playoff. From a fan perspective, I appreciated traveling to the Fiesta and Sugar Bowls when Utah made it when they were in the Mountain West, but I really want to go to the Rose Bowl to watch my team. I understand Utah was one win away from a playoff position this year, but I feel like that was an ideal year with generational players in quarterback and running back. It's a good question. It is a good question. Um, you know, as as we were reading this, and I, when I kind of running my mind through it, I could see where he was going. I think that the challenge of this is, you know, I think Utah it isn't that far off. You know, and now could they win it all? I don't know. I mean, you look back at some of the teams, whether it was TCU before the Big Twelve, or you know, certainly you know Boise State. Um, and I don't know if this is this is kind of taken Barry's question away, but like I do feel like you probably had a better chance. You know, as we did this uh, as we did this group test group text exercise with Andy Staples the other day about our best players. You know, I remember looking at what Joe Burrow and all the teams he had to beat. Because it's a playoff, because it's a 15-game season, you have a harder path to win it. You just do. You're, I mean, Joe Burrow played like seven top 10 teams. Um, there are some of those players in their career didn't beat seven top 10 teams. And so saying all that to get to this, I, as much as it didn't seem like it on the face value, it, I do think you probably had a better chance to win, to play for a national title if you were in the old format than you do now. Is that, am I wrong to think that? Um, I think you're right. I think that, I think that the, the, the previous version of Utah is the BCS buster. I'm sure that those seasons, those undefeated seasons and beating a, a power five team in a bowl game were probably more satisfying to the fans than any season they've had so far in the PAC 12 last year. They almost would have had, you know, the dream season and then I think it ended in a very, very uh, bittersweet fashion. The question is, is it worth it? Is the, is the well, first of all, let's be clear, the the value of Financially winning. Financially, it's worth it. Financially, yeah, yeah. it's worth it. But also just winning one of those BCS games, I, th- I think it's not quite, doesn't have quite the same impact that it did. Like, I mean, when Utah did it in 2004, they were the first ones to do it, right? In 2008, they beat Alabama. Uh, it, you know, Alabama's first really good team under Saban. I, you know, if Memphis had beaten Penn State in the uh, Cotton Bowl last year, it would have been a big deal for them. I don't think it would have resonated quite like those. I just think at the end of the day, don't you want to be at the big boy table? Um, even if that means you're not going to have that kind of season necessarily, I'd rather be at the at the grown-up table at the main event than kind of spending most of the season off the radar and then hoping to have, you know, basically a perfect storm come together and you you get to do what UCF did a couple years ago. Obviously, um, they got tremendous attention for that. It was a great accomplishment uh, when they beat Auburn in the uh, Peach Bowl. But it's not like people were tuning in every week to watch UCF play uh, USF. or Actually, that was a very watched game that year. It was a bad example. Playing Tulsa, playing East Carolina. You're just off the beaten path. Same thing if Utah were still in the Mountain West playing uh, some of those teams. Look, and and just, I mean, I can say this because I've seen Utah up close a lot over the last, you know, five years. There's nothing fluky about them, you know, like they belong. And I think they're, you know, their fan base, and I'm sure some of the people now are younger, so they're, they're, you know, kind of coming of age in this. But like, I mean, I think of them as a power five program. I mean, they obviously have a really good coach and a really good coaching staff. And I think if you have that, 
Um, it enables you to make the transition. But to me, I mean, like, you know, I don't want to get into your your blue bloods and whatever your your thing was from years ago. But I mean, they're they're a real team. I mean, they're like nothing surprises me that they would be a top ten team. There's nothing fluky about it or anything like that. So um, I think the fans, I think the fans get that. But I, I can get where. You know, there's still something about being the the gutty little underdog. You know, kind of off the grid. I think there are people who who you know can you know take pride in that too. Um, but you know, now you're Utah. You're 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 at the big table all the time, and you know, it's no, you know, I don't. I I think people get that when they see it now because it's not happened once or twice. It's a consistent thing with that place. Let's wrap things up with this nice note from Jeff Wald in Helena, Montana. Helena, Montana. Helena, Montana. (laughs) At least I knew it as soon as it came out of my mouth. Holy cow. (laughs) It wasn't like I didn't know that. It just just was as soon as it came out of my mouth. Sorry to that entire city and to Jeff. Stu and Bruce, it's very unusual for me to send feedback after listening to a podcast, but I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your last one with George Schroeder. I just finished it. It was extremely encouraging, and it is, I believe, to be your best podcast episode. Yeah, wow. I think there have been over 200 of them, so... Uh, that's quite the statement. I appreciated his vulnerability and willingness to share his faith and inner thoughts. I bring that up because we got a lot of notes just like that and um, love to get them. Bruce and I are still, you know, that the response to the George Schroeder podcast is exactly why we booked the guests that we booked this week. We're still trying to figure out exactly what kind of content people want during this very unusual time. But um, the, the interview we did with George and him discussing his own journey had exactly the effect we were hoping it would, and I hope that the same holds true um, this week with people getting to hear from Kaylee and from John Gordon. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, I'm glad you said that, and I see you know a bunch of uh, comments from this from, uh, related to George and that conversation. You know, I, I we are just kind of figuring it out. Like one of the things when I would talk to other people about working for the athletic. I said, um, they would ask me about what's it like because you've been at other places. And I was like, well, they just want good stories. That's really the mission is just go find and go tell good stories. And I think right now, I'm not saying like, because there's a bunch of stories that I'm working on now, but I think there is parts where, you know, you've got kids at home, you're trying to play, you know, daycare person and teacher, and you're trying not to watch too much news, but you're still kind of doing it. So I think, um, and honestly, some of us are some of us are are you know able to just plow ahead better than others. But I do think that you know we're trying to be authentic to to who we are and and just figuring this out as we go along. And I think as we get further into this into what becomes our normal, I think we'll probably get more settled down on the football side of it because we'll get we'll be used to kind of how this is going to go for a little while at least. If you guys have suggestions for certain guests you want to hear from over the next few months, you can obviously share those with us. Send an email to theaudiblepod at gmail.com as well as your college football questions that we can get to in the next episode. We'll see you next time. Tournaments have been canceled. Leagues are suspended. There hasn't been a live game on TV in what feels like a year even though it's barely been two weeks, there's no better reminder of how important sports are to our lives than to take them away completely. But The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, and in these very strange, very uncertain times, we are still hard at work doing excellent reporting 
and telling unique, engaging, informative stories, like one about how minor league baseball players are getting financial support from their big league counterparts, or how the situation between Todd Gurley and the Rams was beyond repair, or from Max Olsen today, how Baylor quarterback Charlie Brewer is so excited to start running the LSU offense from last year. It's during times like this that The Athletic can help keep you connected to the teams, the athletes, and the sports you love. Sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. Just go to theathletic.com slash theaudible for a 90-day free trial. Games aren't being played right now, but the stories that draw us all to sports, those don't go away. So go to theathletic.com slash theaudible. We hope to see you there.